What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. My team and I help companies discover and articulate their purpose to thread it through culture and operations. We work with forward-thinking or forward-reaching organizations to develop inspirational leaders who create cultures where people actually want to come to work and do their best. And we provide programs like the Grab Your Gusto that enable individual team members to discover and unleash their passion and purpose at work to catalyze fulfillment, engagement, and productivity. You can learn more about us and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com. With us today is Dr. Rick Garlick, who currently serves as Chief Research Officer for the Incentive Research Foundation, where he oversees key employee motivation research initiatives that advance the science of the industry. He is focused on helping companies to enhance the brand, employee, and customer experience, and linking these strategies to improved business results. We're talking about the state of today's workforce, the state of business today, and developing leaders fit for the times. He joins us today from Smithfield, Pennsylvania. Dr. Garlick, welcome to Working on Purpose. I know he's dropped. We'll get him back here. So while, well, so here he's coming in here. Hello, Dr. Garlick. Welcome to Working on Purpose. You made it back. Yes, I'm sorry. Did you uh, start without me? Uh, yes, we did. That's okay. We, I introduced you, and now we're just getting right into it. So welcome to Working on Purpose, and let's get started. we got much to cover. Okay. All right. So first, I want to just start with how you distinguish yourself in in the in in the business world. And so you call you are. I know that your focus is on creating and implementing state of the art business strategies for customer brand and employee experience initiatives. And I know that you spent many years at the Gallup Institute and and, and, and the organization and many others. But I want to know why you chose this career, and then say a little bit about kind of where you came from. Sure. So I, I love to tell a little bit about my background, and I know that in our first conversation, uh, we had a chance to talk about the importance of purpose in one's work. Uh, so I actually began my professional career as a college professor, university professor. Mm-hmm. I taught at Michigan State and DePaul University, and I thought I had the most important job in the world, uh, educating young minds. And in addition to that, I was also uh, directing our university internship program. So I was giving a lot of people their their first experience. And uh, like many, I became a bit of a victim of the whole tenure process and uh, decided to look beyond my current career into something that might take advantage of the fact that I had a very strong background in research methods. And so I interviewed with a number of companies, but I had the opportunity to talk to Gallup and awesome. I got hired at the Gallup organization. Yeah, it was an incredible break. And uh, if I had the time, I'd even tell you the remarkable story of how I got that job. Uh, but anyway, when I started working for Gallup, I found myself struggling a bit because, you know, we did a lot of work in customer experience and brand uh, experience. But one of the things that I felt like was I just simply wasn't doing my, fulfilling my purpose in as big of a way as when I was a university professor. 
And I remember talking to the chief marketing officer of Gallup at the time, Larry Emond, and him telling me, well, you have to think about the fact that what you're doing is you're helping your clients provide better products and services and have people have better customer experiences and all those sorts of things. And I felt like that was still maybe just one step too short of where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So, so when I had the opportunity to get on the ground floor of some of Gallup's groundbreaking work in employee engagement and employee experience, uh, to me it really resonated because I remember Donald Clifton, uh, who was the chair of Gallup at the time, connecting everything in the world, every problem in the world to one thing. Uh, job dissatisfaction. You know, basically, he did studies correlating sickness, domestic violence, substance abuse, all these things, to the fact that people were unhappy in the place where they spent most of their waking hours. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is really it. I thought of my own father, who had uh, spent 30 years working in a factory, and just thinking if people studied and focused on how to make people's lives better, like my dad's, uh, how much better the world would be. And so I found a tremendous sense of purpose in the work that I did. And I I started working for other companies that had different focuses. Um, I worked for Merits, which is a performance improvement and motivation company. And where Gallup really focused on what I would call the, uh, the nature side of employee experience, Merits focused on the nurture side. And then I, I went to work for JD Power and I started looking at something I call service culture, which is the environment that people work in that either helps them provide a good experience for their customers or a poor experience. And uh, I remember Deming had a quote where he said that if you put a good person in a bad system, the system wins every time. So as I've approached the work that I've done, I've really, I've begun to understand that so much of what we do in my world of consulting and market research is siloed where you have people in marketing really focused on the brand experience. You have people in HR focused on the employee experience and people in quality assurance focused on the customer experience. And so I think I'm a bit unique and I hope more people are thinking like this as we sort of go down this evolutionary path of really understanding how all those pieces have to work together. Um, You know, we'll talk today about a recent study I did on pride. And, you know, we always hear that saying happy employees lead to happy customers. I like to believe that proud employees lead to proud customers. So we'll have a chance to chat a little bit about that. Well, what a fantastic background to draw from, first and foremost. That's just, and I really appreciate how you narrated the twists and turns and that you still were, were, were trying to scratch that itch. Like, I just, I want to be of service and I want to, I want to, I want to live my purpose. And I really appreciate that. I've, it's been a similar sort of journey for me too, as I kept reaching for more depth in that journey. So thank you for keeping it real as you always do. Well, I, I love that, uh, Elise. And I can tell you and I are kindred spirits. You know, we had been chatting before uh, about, you know, how I studied, I was a sociology major in college, and I took classes on the sociology of work and realized that what we're seeing today and what we're experiencing today in the work world is no different than what people experienced at the very very beginning of the, the 20th century. Uh, we have a few unique twists on that. But, you know, people who owned the factories at the time and the people who went to work for those factories, there was a big wealth disparity between those people. And, uh, you know, the whole move toward what we see in society today towards socialism uh, was just as present back then. And I I believe that the labor unions played an important role in 
uh, keeping us on a capitalist path. Some people might think that's good. Uh, some people maybe not, but that kept us firmly planted in the capitalist system. And, uh, you know, that and social safety net programs. Well, now we see so many people, so many young people like my son who are about to graduate from college and they've got fairly significant student loans and sometimes hard to find a job. And uh, so it really becomes a, a very similar circumstance where people are really striving for meaning in their work and purpose and something beyond a paycheck because that's not always there for them. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that next, Rick. This is so great. So I, I want to talk first about the, the state of the workforce, the employee experience really quick. And I want to talk more about this, the great resignation as well. But um, and then we can layer on the, the, the study that you've been doing. So so I found there, there was a Fidelity study that reported that 39% of people in the workforce plan to get a new job in 2022. So, you know, about just under a half or so. So I'd love your perspective on why so many people are leaving their jobs, even without having one secured next. What's your perspective and what's driving all that? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of moving parts in there. And let me try to briefly talk about some of those. First of all, I, I think it's interesting that so many dollars, millions and millions of dollars have been spent on doing employee engagement, employee experience initiatives and mm-hmm. by excellent companies. You know, you mentioned Gallup, you know, my former company, and there's a lot of others out there who are doing great work within companies in this area. And yet, what do we hear? We hear the biggest challenge right now is keep, keeping people employed in their mm-hmm. present companies, attracting and retaining cal- uh, talent. So if we're doing so well, then why do we have this issue? Uh, Part of it, I think, has nothing to do with the quality of work. Uh, As I've been studying this and reading this, I've known, I found out a lot of people who are dropping out of the workforce are are baby boomers, people who might have been a few years from retirement anyway. Uh, The stock market has done very well, and so people's 401k accounts are are looking good. And uh, there were people who felt like, well, I might have worked another several years, but I I did well in the stock market, so I can resign now. Mm. Now, with everything going on in the world, you wonder how that stock market is going to continue. With inflation at almost double digit, with gas prices the highest they've been in history, uh, you wonder if people aren't going to be a little bit more anxious to go back to work. Uh, But I think also it's a matter of that there's so much autonomy that you can experience in the workforce now. Um, I recently after decades of working for various companies, started my own consultancy and and market research firm and found that there are all these mechanisms. If you've got a a computer connection and you've got a cell phone, Mm -hmm. you can run your company from almost anywhere. And there's so many other independent contractors out there that you can partner with. Um, You can actually give your, bring in greater talent, do a better job and save your customers money. So I think that that's another thing that we're seeing. And then there's also the, this whole thing of people trying to find themselves. I think a lot of people who are graduating from college, uh, many times uh, they decide to take a year and just travel the world or take what they call that gap year. So there's a lot of things. And then there's also people that I think are just simply afraid to go back and be around other people. And this whole notion of forcing people back in the office, I, I think is probably blown up. Uh, on some companies where they found that probably wasn't really necessary to force people back into an office. And, and now with when you consider the lack of productivity when people are commuting, uh, when people have to pay for that gas or whatever the transportation costs are, you know, they take a big cut by 
pay cut by going into the office. So yeah. those are the things that I believe are contributing to the, the great resignation. That really helps. Thank you so much for that. Now, on the other side of it, let's talk about what the employers are experiencing, right? And their their experience of the Great Resignation is something else. And I, I have several clients that are that I holding their hand as we go through this together to try to help stem that tide of talent marching out the door. So, you know, I, I've certainly heard stats like four and a half million Americans quit their jobs in November, and that's up three percent from the previous month. But how, what does that look like? Talk, share with us your perspective on the pain that organizations feel in this great resignation time. Well, ironic you would ask me that. I was just on the phone the other day with a hotel executive who told me there are hotel managers of which she's aware who literally go to the bus stop every morning to try to recruit people to come to work at the hotels. Wow. Seriously, and and this is real, and uh, you know that's how bad it is for so many people. I mean, people think, boy, our experiences don't seem to be as good anymore. Well, when you think about, uh, you call a call center, and I, I called a, a call center the other day and got the recorded message that I would be basically on hold for two hours if I wanted to speak to a live person. Wow. Well, I don't think that's so much just people trying to save money. There's nobody to staff the call centers. Right, right. And, uh, so, you know, sometimes we complain about the bad experiences that we have, but it's really not due to the fault of the companies that we do business with. It's really the fact that they just simply don't have the people and the staff to be able to provide the same kind of experience that they had previously. And we're used to, like I say, I do a lot of work in the hospitality hospitality world, we're used to that certain experience in a hotel. And when we've got to wait or be on hold or all these sorts of things that we're not used to, it seems like things have slipped pretty significantly. So that's the pain that, that people are dealing with on all ends, not just the employer end, but on the customer side as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting. I'm doing a, I've got a client here that I'm, it's in the sustainability space and I'm helping them hire because they're in that process and they, they can hire fast enough to be able to uh, meet the demand of the clients who want to work with them. So I'm out there looking for talent and I did a search on LinkedIn, Rick, for sustainability people. And I looked and I found that I think it was something like 80% of the people that I found that I just happened to be in my search had been in their current role for less than six months. It just shows the mobility of the workplace right now, right? So it's the fluidity of it all. So I do know that there's a lot of demand and people, you know, the salaries increase. Companies have a hard time meeting the salary increase requirements seen in the workforce. It is a workforce-led or employee-led workforce now, as far as I could tell. Uh, It's fascinating. It's really, really interesting times. And, you know, I why part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show for our last segment to be able to talk about what do we need to de- develop in terms of our leadership to deal with these times. We'll get to that later. But as far as I can tell, this is pretty unprecedented. It is unprecedented. Now, in fairness, keep in mind the fact that so many people lost their jobs in the pandemic. I, I knew so many people, customers of mine, people I'd worked with for literally decades who we're given a pink slip. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that is now that business is kind of getting back a bit to normal, people need to, to hire people and fill those positions. So that's why why you're seeing a lot of that. I, I know a lot of people personally who were let go, who now are back in the workforce. So that's part of it as well. But uh, I think the other piece is, and we've heard this for years, that uh, I remember, I think it was in the 90s, I heard when I was at Gallup that in 
people who are graduating from college at that time, uh, that they were expected to have like some crazy number, like 14 different jobs in their careers. Mm -hmm, And, uh, you know, you think about people like my dad who worked for Chrysler for 30 years and retired with a pension. Uh, Now you're pretty much a free agent um, and people hire people based on need and understanding that when you come into an employer, uh, they basically say, look, we'll keep you here as long as you create the kind of value that we can use. And when you cease to create that value, you won't be here, but here's what we can do for you. We can help you build your own personal brand. We can give you experiences to put on your resume to make you more marketable for that career path that you want to choose. And, um, you know, when we start talking more in depth about this, we can pursue this topic further, but it's a whole notion of people understand that I'm not, I don't have a lifetime contract with an employer. What I do have is the opportunity to build my personal brand, build up that LinkedIn profile, build up that resume and make myself really look very desirable for whatever that next situation is, as I evolve in my own career path. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Great way to send us into our first break. Rick, I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We are on the air with Dr. Rick Garlick. He's the principal of a research-based consultancy focused on enhancing the brand, employee, and customer experience and linking these strategies to improved business results. We've been talking a bit about the current state of the workforce. After the break, we'll get into a little bit more of what's going on in business today and talk about that pride uh, research that he did for WorkProud. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to the program. I'd like to invite you to check out my book, Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion in a Late Cause, which is now on Amazon. I wrote the book to awaken readers to their passion and purpose and help transform them into inspirational leaders who enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of business to all its stakeholders. I hope you'll check it out. I use the content as a basis for my Vitally Inspired Leadership Program and my Grab Your Gusto programs. If you're just joining the program today, my guest is Dr. Rick Garlick, who currently serves as Chief Research Officer for the Incentive Research Foundation, where he oversees key employee motivation research initiatives that advance the science of the industry. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So let's talk a little bit more about what's going on in the world of business today, if we can first, Rick, so we can we can help our listeners and viewers understand the state of affairs. We talked before the break about some of the things related to the Great Resignation. But what else do you see as perplexing leaders today in the world of business? Well, I think one of the things that people are forced to do in order to adapt to the changing times is we've shifted from a model of what we've always called shareholder capitalism to now looking at stakeholder capitalism, where you know you had mentioned sustainability and uh, ESG and the environmental, social, and governance um, initiatives. They're no longer nice-to-haves. They're, they're must-haves. Right. And uh, 
the business imperative uh, is to have these programs in place. Now, uh, I think the challenge is that, and I may say this respectfully, that I don't think people necessarily think of these things strategically. They are more reactive in nature than strategic in nature. So this is a, another area where I'm going to be teaching a course coming up in the next uh, few weeks with uh, a friend of mine, uh, Carrie Broussard, who's head of a wonderful organization called uh, Cinderella the CEO. And uh, anyway, one of the things that we're going to talk about is the whole notion of how do you make your corporate social responsibility or ESG program a profit center for your company? And that's not how people think. Uh, people think of this as sort of the charitable arm or the foundation arm of a company. And it has to now be integrated into the, you know, the corporate strategy and the brand strategy, you know, not just to simply appeal to those investors, but also customers, employees, regulators, mm -hmm. all sorts of constituencies that we may not have thought about before. Uh, so how well companies do those diversity and inclusion initiatives, sustainability initiatives, all those sorts of things are really tantamount to a company's success and also drive something you and I, I know we plan to talk about this, the pride that people have in working for their company. And that ultimately creates that kind of stickiness that you know we were talking about when we were chatting about the great resignation. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, let's talk about that next. Uh, I know you. I know WorkProud is 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 a has been a wonderful collaborator of mine. Uh, they have sponsored the show for a good year or such. We do work together as well. I I love. I'm a fan of of, of their organization and the work they do. And I know that they commissioned you and Dr. Bob Nelson to do a study on pride in the workplace. So let's hear a little bit about that. What did you learn pertinent to this conversation about making people want to come to work? You know, a lot of a lot of what I discovered was almost sort of a big bang theory for me having worked in this area for so long i suddenly realized that so many of the initiatives that we focused on uh, in studying the employee experience are really coming more from a rational place in how people think about their jobs you know do i get paid enough do i like my boss do i have decent hours or am i overworked all these kinds of things that really tap more into the way we think about things with the rational part of our brain, not the emotional part of our brain. And something that I've often talked about and spoken about is something I call irrational commitment. And that is the willingness to do things that don't seem rational, but they're driven by the emotional part of our brain. The prefrontal cortex, which is really the, the key motivator and the choices we make. And what Bob and I discovered in this study was that what we believe is the secret sauce to employee engagement and motivation is this whole notion of pride, how people feel at the end of the day about the work they've done. Was it meaningful? Did it make a difference? Did I make a unique contribution that only I could make and I don't perceive others could have done as well as I could have done? And so we discovered and really tapped into two concepts, one being individual pride that one has in his or her work. So this is, you know, do I think I did a good job? Do I think my work was meaningful? Did it have a purpose? Uh, all those sorts of things. Did I help someone or accomplish something significant? And when we ask people, what did it feel like to have a day that you were really proud of at work? People would talk about, you know, how they were able to help a person uh, that nobody else seemed to be able to help or were able to solve a problem that other people were able to solve. And I started thinking about you know, experiences I had had. I, I often share the story I had 
of sitting across the uh, the aisle on a Southwest flight with a consultant who worked with, with the Sara Lee Corporation years ago. And uh, we all know about Sara Lee, they make the donuts and pastries, but what people didn't know is at the time, they were also the parent company for the Hanes brand. So the same company that made your pastries and donuts made your socks and underwear. And uh, every day, this consultant told me that when people walked into the office, they saw this big banner overhead that said, we feed and clothe the world. That's awesome. Think about how much more yeah. powerful that is than we sell pastries and underwear. Absolutely. You know, going to work every day, you know, driving that sense of, of pride. Now, the second type of pride is pride that one has in his or her company. And uh, personal pride can be transportable. So if I'm proud of the job I do, uh, I can be proud of my work doing it for you or somebody else. But what really creates that stickiness in the face of this great resignation and attracting and retaining talent is the whole idea that I'm proud of whom I work for. And one of the striking statistics that we found in our study is that 48%, almost half of those in the high pride group, the group that had a high pride in their company, uh, strongly agreed, gave the strongest response to the statement, even if I were offered significantly more money to do the same work at another place, I would choose to stay here versus only 2% in the low pride group but who probably checked that box by accident. But uh, <laughs> you know, think about that. And when you look at the cost of turnover, you know, the conventional wisdom has always said that Every time you replace uh, an employee, it's one and a half times the person's first year salary. Um, I've heard other people quote other numbers, but let's say that the high that the cost of voluntary turnover is quite high. That if you could increase it by that much of a factor by driving pride in the company, you know you can do the math in terms of how much money you would save and how much value you drive for your company. So, what is it that contributes to high company pride? One is something that we've talked about already. Is my company perceived as being a good corporate citizen? Do they do the right thing? Do they have a, a positive culture where I go in and I feel recognized and valued and uh, that people um, really respect me and trust me and my manager shows me a concern and praises my work? But then also, you know, there's these other things too that do they share my values? So the things that are important to me are those things that are equally important to my employer and uh, to the extent that and I remember doing studies on this years ago and it was less than 10% strongly agreed with the idea that their company's values were completely consistent with their own and the more that we can drive values alignment and look to understand what our employees are concerned about what do they care about and then tap our corporate social responsibility initiatives into those kinds of causes, then we're going to get that stronger sense of pride, value alignment, and drive all kind of monetary value for the company that people aren't even thinking about right now. I like it. It sounds good to me. Now, one thing that I have certainly become very attuned to in the 25 years that I've been in the human capital space is the immediate need for so many organizations to vastly overhaul any practices and policies that touch a human being. Very, sort of some really outdated stuff that just squashes the spirit of people, you know, in terms of promotions, how they get hired, how they're trained, you know, oh my gosh, so many things. So I, I was already on a campaign to um, in, urge 
companies to revamp, to take a look at and revamp anything that related to how they touch people. Um, do you have a perspective or anything you want to share that, or just even a couple principles about what they might look at to be able to advance and improve those policies? Well, maybe I'll say something controversial. I don't know. But, uh, you know, that always makes for an interesting show, right? <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm sad about in our workforce is that in many ways it seems like fear has become sort of the dominant emotion in the culture. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we don't need to have, you know, regulations about what people can do in the workplace or, you know, what they can say and how they can interact with their colleagues. But I think the scary part of it is that you become so afraid and so mistrusting other people because you're so afraid of complimenting someone on their appearance or, you know, making an inappropriate joke or saying something that you may not even know is inappropriate, but we are so sensitive as a culture that uh, I think what it's, it's really taken away from is that sense of camaraderie and trust. Now, what's interesting about that is, you know, we had talked, I think, in our last conversation offline about the labor unions. Labor unions thrive when there's a kind of an enmity between themselves and, and management, but strong uh, solidarity between themselves and their coworkers. So I trust my coworkers, I don't trust my managers. Well, because nobody trusts their coworkers, this has been something that has really impacted the labor movement. And uh, again, some people would say that's good, some people would say that's bad, but I don't think that you ever win or get ahead by having a, a culture of mistrust where you know you are afraid of your colleagues. You're afraid to say the wrong thing. You're afraid somebody's going to throw you under the bus. So I think, uh, again, we need to find some balance where you know people can build healthy friendships with, with their coworkers. Uh, Gallup, of course, had that infamous question that everybody hates. Uh, I have a best friend at work. And everybody, anybody who's worked with Gallup knows that question. I defended that question for a lot of my career. Uh, I'm glad I don't have to continue to do so, but I could if I had to, uh, because I, I think what's interesting about it is that, you know, the data show that we work more productively with people that we like and have a close relationship with versus people that we feel either dislike toward or indifference toward. Now, nobody would question that. Nobody would say that that's wrong. Uh, I know when I have customers and coworkers who ask me to go out of my way and maybe give some discretionary effort that I might otherwise not have given, if I like you, I'm much more willing to do that than if I don't like you. (laughs) And uh, what's interesting also is that that question always correlated to customer experience as well. And uh, you think that, you know, how in the world could that be? Well, I mean, people who like each other step up and will train you and show you what you need to do and give you tips and advice and step in for you. It has a good impact on your customers and on productivity, which, again, feels counterintuitive to many because you think if you're you know, socializing with your coworkers too much, that it's taking away from productivity when actually, you know, it's contributing to productivity. So I think how we think about these issues, you know, we've kind of swung the pendulum, in my humble opinion, a bit too far. And I don't think that people would disagree with that. But it's sort of like, what do you do about it? Because people are just so litigious these days and people don't want to get themselves into trouble. So we've got to find some healthy solution to that. And 
how I would answer that is that I think, you know, diversity on all these characteristics that we think about, but unity on values, that we share the same values with one another, regardless of what our ethnicity is, our gender or sexual orientation or any of those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I'll say a little more about that when we come back from the break, but that's a perfect way to send us to our last break. Good. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We went, we've been on the air with Dr. Rick Garlick, the principal of a research-based consultancy focused on enhancing the brand, employee, and customer experience and linking these strategies to improve business results. We've been talking a bit about the state of business today. We'll talk a little bit more about that and then finish the program talking about what we need to see in leaders today. How can we develop the leaders that can actually deal with what's in front of them today? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. One of the bit of news that I want to share with you before we get back into the program with Rick is I want to share with you that an anthology that I've been curating for the last few years has been released. It was August of last year. It's a collection of 25 stories from women across the globe who share their intimate details of finding their purpose and what they're doing now to serve from it. It's called Passionately Striving and Why, an anthology of women who persevere mightily to live their purpose. It's also on Amazon. I'm so proud of it I could bust. And now I'm out trolling the world to find men who want to share their stories. If you know anyone who'd like to join us, reach out to me at Elise at EliseCortez.com. If you're just joining us now, my guest is Dr. Rick Garlick, who currently serves as Chief Research Officer for the Incentive Research Foundation, where he oversees key employee motivation research initiatives that advance the science of the industry. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So before we get back into the bit about leadership here, I just wanted to finish a bit on the last topic we were speaking about, Rick, about um, HR practices and policies. I would just offer to audiences, um, really take a look at how your practices are actually focused on bringing out the best and nurturing your individual human being who is your employee, your team member, instead of what are you doing to just make it more efficient for you, the organization. That's all I would put forth. So when you start thinking about so much of the engine really grinds people, it doesn't actually help serve them to bring their best. There's not a lot of flexibility. It really is, this is our policy. And there's there's no human heartbeat in that. So that's all I would say about that. Great point. I couldn't agree more, Elise. Okay, good. I knew we were aligned on this. I knew I, it. I'm, I'm, I'm in violent agreement with what you just said. <laughs> okay, good. Good. Um, well, you know, I want to talk this last bit about you know, the, the leadership part of it, because let me just really acknowledge listeners and viewers. If you are a leader today, this is not a fun time for you, right? You are not having a good time. This is this is a challenge at its highest height for you. And I certainly respect and appreciate and, and, I'm, and the, I'm here with you to hold your hand. And so is Rick. So I, I want to first start by maybe talking, Rick, if we can, from your perspective, what kind of a leader do you think we need in today's time? So that's pandemic. This is a time when there's you know high focus on ESG and sustainability. What kind of a leader do we need today? Well, I, I think to echo one of the points you just made a few seconds ago, 
I think we've got to have people who, uh, to use a, a term from my academic days, have a certain degree of cognitive complexity. In other words, mm -hmm. they don't see the world in black and white, but they see it in, in shades of gray. And they understand that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to anything. And um, you know, I just did a study with the Incentive Research Foundation, you mentioned, that looked at how people like to be rewarded and uh, recognize the work. And what we would find is that there are certain people that what they love the most, other people hate the most. So like someone like myself, I love to be on a stage and I love to be publicly acknowledged. Other people, that's tantamount to death. Right. I mean, they don't want that at all. And so understanding that everybody's an individual. And one of the things that I love that Gallup used to teach is the whole idea of defining the outcomes that you want to achieve and then allowing people to find their own path on how to get there. So I've worked for, for leaders and, you know, and I've liked these people personally, but, you know, again, sort of coming from the perspective I come from, you're sort of internally screaming that they have a, a process that worked for them to get them to where they succeeded and found themselves at, at a certain level of influence over others. And they believe that because this path worked for them, it will work the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, not everyone works the same way. And there has to be this ability to understand what the talents are, the unique abilities that people bring to the workforce and maximize those. So for example, you know, I will never be like a great proofreader. Um, you know, if I were if I were hired to proofread documents for a living, I would take twice as long and make twice as many mistakes, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, it's one of those things that that's just not my gift. I'm not a detail-oriented person. But there are other people that have just this amazing ability. My wife, she can watch a movie and she can remember the smallest detail that she sees in that movie, and it's absolutely amazing to me. And that the whole idea of being able to leverage people's talents in the most effective way is recognizing we're all individuals, we all bring something unique, and it's this whole notion that Gallup has promoted about strengths-based leadership, the idea that we need to find out what people are good at and not have them spending a lot of time on things that they're not so great at. You know, like, um, again, my last company had me spending a lot of my time doing PowerPoint reports. And, you know, I got a lot better, but that wasn't something I was great at. And uh, I thought, boy, there's so many other things I'd rather be doing than doing PowerPoint decks, you know, even though this is something that was sort of in the role that I had. So finding what people do well, putting them in there and just understanding one size did not fit all in anything. And by the way, this is something that millennials who we spend so much time talking and thinking about, one of the things about millennials is that they love, they thrive on flexibility. Flexibility, if there's a word to describe the millennial, it's flexibility. They don't want to be the same as everybody else. They don't want to be treated the same as anyone else. And the good leader, the talented leader, recognizes that and is able to make those mental adjustments and adapt to different people's personal styles and bring out the best of individuals, even though they may not fit the cookie cutter mold that at one time we, we would have demanded in corporate America. Mm -hmm. Such interesting stuff, so much there. So you meant there's quite that you just gave us there, but I want to make sure if there's anything else you could think of in the way of like competencies or skills that you think that today's leader just really is best served to have. 
Yeah, you know, again, I skills was always a bit of a dirty word to me because uh, skills was something that you could always learn skills, but what you couldn't learn was talent. So you had to have certain talent, and then if you brought people in who didn't have the background, if they had the right talents, they could they could learn the skills. So I'll just say, what talents do people need? I think people need the and these not, are not always thought of as talents, but that notion of of being able to see those subtle nuances, those shades of gray, and understand that yesterday's situation may require a different solution than today's and tomorrow's. And the ability almost to spin on a dime, I think probably the least inspiring word I ever heard from a leader, and I, I won't say the company, but I remember him getting up and always saying, let's stay the course. You know, we were successful last year doing this, and we're just gonna stay the course for the future. And I think that if you stay the course, it's just kind of a formula for disaster. Um, I remember, uh, again, my last year at Gallup, I remember Jim Clifton, who was the CEO of Gallup at the time, talking about the successful year we had had the year before. And in every metric of success, Gallup had a great year uh, in 1999. And so he had everybody give themselves a, a hand. He says, okay, as of today, I'm blowing all this up and I'm starting from scratch. Why would I do that? And he laid out the course and I thought, wow, this this is really great leadership, you know, because he's not relying on what's happened before, but he's seeing the tea leaves. He's seeing, you know, where the ball is going down the field and he's getting the position to adapt for it. So those are the qualities in my mind of, of being a great leader. Mm, that's gorgeous and perfectly lines me up for the next question I want to ask you, Rick. So. I really focused on this notion of, of where we are today as leaders. And so I'm curious about your perspective of what made for effective leaders, say, 10 years ago versus today. Well, again, I think that, and I, again, I don't mean to be unkind, but you're asking me direct questions, so I'm giving you direct answers. Mm -hmm. I think that one of, the, one of the things that people look for in leaders 10 years ago they look for people who could really manage the bottom line effectively. Uh -huh. So, you know, I mean, basically, and again, not, not picking on these people because I love them, but most of the CEOs came from either a finance background, an operations background, or possibly a, a legal background. Those were the three categories that, that, that people hired from that pool to pick their next CEO. And again, these people are great and they're very successful in many ways, but I always found that people who came from a marketing background made great CEOs insofar as that they're thinking about customer needs, they're thinking about their employees' needs, and they're always looking for that next big thing. And so, you know, again, a different type of mindset is required today. And you read about these people when you read books on successful companies. There are people who came in, you know, maybe not so, they didn't have that operational, kind of how many beds, heads and beds can you put on, how many widgets can you sell at the cheapest price, but they really focused on a bigger picture, believing, believing that whole idea that engaged, motivated, proud employees, purposeful employees drove value beyond what you could do by simply you know, trying to manage to that bottom line, biggest profits at the you know, lowest cost. So I think that's my answer to that question. It's just, I think, a different approach to leadership and even a different type of individual that we might think about moving forward. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate how you distinguished yesteryear and today. I would, I would sprinkle in a few things that I found to be really, really critical to be effective leaders. Study. One is 
you, you got to be able to be able to inspire people to be able to reach beyond what they think they can do. Um, you need emotional intelligence to do that. And oftentimes, to your point of marketing, you need to be a pretty good storyteller. By that, I mean to be able to tell the story of why does the company exist and how are they serving the world? How are they making things better? People are wired to hear those stories, right? So a good communicator who can convey why the company is important, how this person's work is, makes this the company actually hum. Beautiful, right? So that's still back. You know, I can't help it, Rick. Right? I, I'm always going to sing the praises of meaning and purpose. That's just it's my jam. As you should, as you should. And uh, you know, again, I I work with a lot of CEOs who come from the very backgrounds I just referenced, and you know, they're wonderful people, but they have a talent. They have a lot of talent at being great managers. I think that there's a difference between being a manager and a leader. Um, and that's not to say, that, yeah, that's not to say that people. Um, any anyone from any background can't be an inspirational leader. I uh, I literally I was a keynote speaker at uh, an event, uh, the regional conference for the world conference actually for Carlson Hotels back in the day, and I saw the CEO literally at this banquet jump to save someone's life. Wow! And uh, wow. yeah, who was having an epileptic seizure at great risk to himself and. I, I just thought, wow, there's a guy who really understands servant leadership, and and he had a law background. So I mean, very impressive. I mean, there are some very impressive people out there. Mm -hmm. There's so much we can learn as well. So Rick, Rick, we've done it. We managed to go through almost a whole hour together. We're at the end of the show. That you know, the show is listened to by people around the world who want to make the workplaces someplace where people actually want to come and thrive. We create those inspirational leaders that bring them to their best, and we do business that better better's the world. What would you like to leave them with today? Well, again, I think it's thinking differently. You know, listening to people like yourself, you know, who are, are, are great champions and ambassadors for the whole idea of the critical importance of things like purpose and workplace pride and pride in one's company as being just as important as operational efficiency. And if there's one thing I can leave the audience with, it's understanding that we're human beings, we're not robots, and even in manufacturing environments, um, you know, there's so much more of that human element that we're just not simply pushing a button, but we bring hopes and dreams and aspirations and, and goals and values. And those things sometimes get messy and we don't necessarily understand how to always address them. But to the extent that we can do that successfully, and like you said, you know, you're ready to help them, I'm ready to help them and many other people uh, to get a vision for this. Uh, I think that the extent that you can do that, that that's what you need in today's modern workforce to be successful. Fantastic way to finish the show, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate that. It's great to know you, great to have you in my life, and great to share you with my listeners. What a pleasure. And let's do it again. <laughs> Will do. You can run, but you can't hide from me. Uh, I don't want to. Okay, good. Well, I'm pretty fast, too. Uh, so listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Dr. Garlic or the work that he does, his numerous articles, Start by going to LinkedIn and finding him there. His, his name is Rick, R-I-C-K. His last name is G-A-R-L-I-C-K. You can message him or connect with him. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it via recorded podcast. We are on here with Melanie Pump talking about her book, Detox, Managing Insecurity in the Workplace and how leaders can create healthy cultures built on psychological safety. Next week, we'll be on the air with Chris King talking about the work he does helping teams achieve impossible work through flow. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose. 